If you'd like to follow along with the message this morning, there's an outline provided in the bulletin for you uh, to follow along and take notes if you wish. Well, it is a new year, and the promise of a new calendar year often inspires us to change. We make New Year's resolutions, and we usually try to make ourselves better in some way. Maybe we try to eat better, a healthier diet, or to exercise more, or to watch less TV, or maybe to pray more. And many of us see the new year as a fresh start full of opportunity. And then today comes, January 3rd. We're usually good for two days. And then the third comes and we stumble. And we fall. And we mess up. We struggle to keep these resolutions like we wish we could. We just can't seem to help but get in our own way. Well, our passage today from Mark shows us some disciples who really want to follow Jesus. And yet they can't help but seem to get in their own way. It seems like every step forward ends up with three, four, five, twenty steps backward. And so from our passage today, we see the disciples are trying to follow Jesus. And yet they're doing it in all the wrong way. And Jesus tries to correct them. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, and see again the disciples' failure. At this start of the new year. Mark 30, or Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to show the disciples the way. And those of us who also try to follow him, we find ourselves stumbling again and again. And so we return to your word, for through your word you speak to us. So Lord, today, send your spirit to be with us, opening our hearts and our minds to receive your word. May we understand what you are saying to us. May you change us by your grace and your great power so that we may follow your son Jesus and bring glory and honor to you. Amen. Well, it being a new year, we may here in the church try to follow Jesus. Well, as we try to follow Jesus, we should resolve to live holy lives of service instead of like the disciples who were seeking after status. And two different times, Jesus has to correct them of things they were doing wrong. So we're going to look at those two mistakes they made and how Jesus corrects them before seeing what Jesus turns their focus on. So we see this passage that Jesus is on his way through Galilee going to Capernaum. And Jesus is teaching his disciples very important things about how he's going to be killed and then rise again three days later. But the disciples aren't really listening. They're busy arguing with one another about which one of them is very important. And so once they arrive at their base of operations in Capernaum, Jesus asks his disciples, Hey, uh, what were you talking about on the road back there? And they don't want to answer. They're embarrassed about what they were discussing. They had been arguing which one of them was the greatest. And they realized that was probably the wrong thing to discuss. It was an error on their part. But it was an understandable error. If you remember from last week, we were in the first half of Mark chapter 9. And it showed there was a distinction between the disciples. That Jesus took an inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on top of a mountain. And they were able to witness Jesus in his transfigured glory. Meanwhile, the other disciples were down in town being frustrated and embarrassed by the fact that they could not cast out an evil spirit from a boy. They had been able to do such things earlier, but on this occasion, they could not. And so, this probably created tension, fighting amongst them. Well, we got to da, 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 da. you guys struggled with that and that and that. And they were wondering which one of them was the greatest. Perhaps even hearing that Jesus might die, there was a, well, who's going to be the leader once he's gone? And so they're fighting amongst themselves over who is the greatest, who has the highest status among their group of 12. But Jesus has to correct them through his teaching, sitting them down in the house and saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, many of us who've grown up in the church, this the last will be first and the first will be last sounds really familiar maybe, but it isn't completely counterintuitive I remember being a camp counselor at a summer sports camp, and we were trying to teach these kids about Christian ethics and being first and all of this, or not being first, 
See, I can't even think of how to say it because it was so weird. And we were talking about, well, the first is last and the last is first. We were trying to encourage this team on. I'm like, go get them. No, wait, be last. No, but first, last. And you, it doesn't, it blows your mind with the way of the world. How do you encourage someone, go be last? It doesn't make sense. It's counterintuitive. Yet it's a value of the kingdom of God. A principle that turns the world upside down on itself. That greatness comes through service. Jesus goes on to use an example to help his disciples understand. So he's teaching in this house where they most likely had their base of operations. And people lived there, including kids. And so in this circle of Jesus and the twelve, he reaches out, grabs a child, and puts him in the midst This kid looking around, being thrust into the important circle. And Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So other than scaring this kid, what is Jesus doing here? What does it mean to receive a child in Jesus' name? Well, in that time period, children were the least influential members of society. They could do nothing for you. All they did was take from you, and they didn't give you anything. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone. You see, children are valued, certainly. They're cute and they're great, but they don't help you get ahead. They don't help you get a promotion. They don't help you gain in status. Politicians know this. They kiss babies, yes, but babies do not vote. They have important fundraising dinners, and those matter far more than any baby that they're going to kiss. And so Jesus is saying that receiving for and caring for the least influential people in society, that's what connects you to the most important person in society, God himself. See, receiving a child can get you no status upgrade. It doesn't get you a perk. It doesn't connect you to the higher-ups. According to the world, according to the world, you would want to shake hands with dignitaries, with kings, with the wealthiest people on earth. But that's not how greatness works in the kingdom of God. It does not mean seeking those with a great worldly status, but serving those who can offer you nothing in return. So how might we seek greatness in the wrong way? How might we, like the disciples, fight amongst one another, maybe not here, but somewhere else, for respect, for influence, for reputation? Do we care for children even if they can't help us make connections in our work life? Do we value serving children, whether they are nine months old, nine years old, or in ninth grade? Do we truly value children in the church as more than just a sign that we have a good children's ministry or that our church has a future? Do we love and pour into children even if they give us nothing in return? But maybe it's not children we avoid. They are cute after all, certainly. Maybe we neglect the least of these, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 25, our New Testament reading. Do we only welcome people into our lives or into the church who can help us to grow, to gain, numerically, financially, generationally? Do we seek out those with power? 
Do we ever find ourselves thinking, I want these kinds of people around me with these kinds of incomes, but not those people who can't do anything for me, whether individually or as a church? So as we think about Bethel Church, it's 2016, a new year. Are we more concerned with increasing our church's status as a healthy, growing church? Or are we more concerned with serving the least of these, even if they give us nothing in return? Greatness that is recognized by the world is not what we are to seek. Jesus calls us to aspire to greatness through humble service. Finding those who can do nothing and return. Those who are not influential at all and caring for them above all. Is that our goal in 2016 personally? Is that our goal as a church here at Bethel? And so Jesus hardly finishes getting the kid out of the circle before John blurts out another error. And he sounds so proud of himself. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. The previous concern was about which one of the 12 was number one. But now they are concerned that the 12 are the highest ranking followers of Jesus. See, here are the concerns that John has. It doesn't matter that this man is doing good in Jesus' name. Who cares about that? What really matters to John and probably the rest of the disciples is that they weren't one of us. They weren't following the 12. The disciples had put in all this work. They had given up so much to follow Jesus. They loved their preferred status as the 12. These followers then, these other guys, needed to answer to the official authorized circle of Jesus. That was their mindset. That for John and the other disciples, they were concerned with maintaining their status, the exclusive club of higher ranking people that they were a part of. Well, Jesus had to correct this error as well. He says, the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus' words show there's only two sides. You are either with Jesus or against Jesus. He doesn't want his disciples to stop these others because they are serving in Christ's name. They recognize Jesus is the Messiah and they want to participate in this new mission, this kingdom, this exciting new thing that is happening. And Jesus wants the twelve to encourage them to do good. Even if that good seems really small and insignificant. See, he says, offering a cup of water. Offering a cup of water is hardly even worth a thank you. And yet Jesus says that person will have a reward for offering a cup of water in the name of Jesus. So Jesus continues with another example to help push this teaching home in verse 42. And it seems like he's talking about children again with these little ones, but I think it's referencing the least of these. That in the disciples, in the twelve's eyes, those guys were the little ones. We are the big deal here. We are the twelve. And those little ones need to answer to us. So Jesus is saying, if anyone causes one of these little guys, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Well, that, that is an extreme example, Jesus. 
Jesus says that causing any follower of him to sin and to stumble, it would be better for that person to drown quickly at the bottom of the ocean. So Jesus is taking this seriously. This is how serious it is to cause a fellow believer to stumble. And the immediate context shows he is speaking to a group of people who try to make religion an exclusive thing. That you guys, though you may believe in Jesus, though you may care, you're not good enough. You haven't passed our tests yet. The disciples were concerned with maintaining their special status as the twelve. Well, we are not the twelve in here. But how might we struggle with this? How might we struggle with thinking too highly of ourselves and our place? Are we unwilling to work with other churches from different denominations just because they're different from us in some ways? Are we unwilling to encourage people to do good in Christ's name if they haven't met all of our detailed doctrinal standards? I'm all for doctrine and truth, but every last T that's crossed and I that's dotted, there's a point where we can work together. Do we rejoice when good happens at another church, or are we jealous that it didn't happen to us? Are we more concerned with ourselves and our place than we are with God and his mission around the world? So as we look forward in 2016, how can we serve God at Bethel? Would we rejoice if God's kingdom grew through us, even if we did not receive blessings from it? Are we willing to take a broader view of the kingdom that doesn't require everything to be channeled through this group of people? Can we rejoice when other churches are glorifying God and doing good in the name of Jesus Christ? We are to worry about the greatness of Jesus. Not our own status, not our place, not our reputation. We are to lift high the name of Jesus, that great name. You see, the disciples were concerned about their own status. They looked at themselves and wanted to compare themselves to others. They were concerned with being great. Even more so, they were concerned with being perceived as being great. It didn't matter if they were great as long as people thought they were great. But at the end of the passage, Jesus turns their attention not to comparing with others, but to looking at themselves. He wants his followers to be less concerned with being better than other believers and other churches. He wants them to look at their own sin into the ways that they stumble. And Jesus uses graphic imagery to get this across. Jesus talks about hell. He teaches about the danger of hell. He encourages his disciples to take drastic steps to avoid hell. What a way to start a new year, guys. This is great. Get to talk about the fires of hell. No. Sorry, that's unintentional. See, the purpose of these words here in Mark is to draw the disciples' attention away from comparing themselves to others, away from seeking greater status. He wants them to see that it is far more important to deal with their own sin than to climb over the guy next to them. He encourages them to diagnose their sin. He's already done it twice with their two errors. He wants them to look at what causes them to stumble when they try to follow Jesus. And then he encourages them to take drastic measures. 
See, for New Year's resolutions, we try to take drastic measures to eat better, to exercise more, to achieve certain goals. We may go so far as giving up chocolate, like, that's too much. Giving up fast food. We may commit to running a mile a day or reading a hundred books in 2016 or something crazy like that. But how much more should we seek to take drastic measures to heed the words of Jesus and avoid the fires of hell? How much more should we concern ourselves with our sin that separates us from God rather than the other surface-level things in our lives? Jesus shows how far we should go. Jesus uses amputation as an image of how seriously we must take our sin. Now, Jesus' words are hyperbole. I don't want you coming next week missing limbs or eyes. Does everyone hear me? Okay. It is hyperbole, but his tone is not hyperbole. If there is something that causes us to stumble in sin, will we get rid of it? The amputation analogy makes us think of an infectious disease, of a poisonous venom. Will we cut off the affected area so that it will not spread? Sin, like any infectious disease, is not content staying in one place. It wants to spread. Jesus calls all of his followers to diagnose themselves with the word and to stop the spread of sin. To diagnose the problem and eliminate it before it spreads. See, the imagery of amputation gets back to the idea of status and comparison that the disciples care about so much. Won't other people notice that we're not whole people if we take those steps? Everybody else has two hands. Won't we get laughed at if we don't have two hands? Perhaps that hand is something that the culture accepts and says is okay, and yet Scripture says it is sin. Perhaps that eye that Jesus says you need to tear out is something people have come to expect of you, and they'll look at you weird if it's not there anymore. Other people will notice if you cut out certain things from your life. That is a strong societal pressure not to change. But Jesus is saying, heed the warnings. He's talking about hell. He's talking about fire here. The amputation analogy touches on something else. That none of us would willingly say, yeah, I could probably do without that foot. Yeah. I've already got another hand, like this one can go. None of us would say that. We would consider them too important. We would miss them too much. Oh, and how sin can hold a similar sway in our lives. If I give this up, if I get rid of it, I would miss it too much. I couldn't possibly do without that. How could Jesus want me to give that up and do this instead? When we are diagnosed with a disease, when we are sick, we are willing to consider all forms of treatment and life changes in order to be physically healthier. Will we not do the same spiritually? Will we hear the call of Jesus in our lives? Will we resolve this year to use the word of God to diagnose the sin within us so that we may follow Jesus as he would have us? Will we run to him in repentance when we have found sin and say to him, get rid of this in my life? 
while we can ask for forgiveness in general terms, will we look specifically and say, God, forgive me for this and this and this too and that thing I just noticed yesterday. Mark concludes this passage with a very confusing collection of sayings about salt and fire. Having examined a number of commentaries and studies this week, I can assure you that the consensus from them is we have no idea what he's talking about. So here we go. What we do know is that salt was used as a flavor, as a preservative, that fire was used to refine things. It was used to sacrifice. So perhaps Jesus here is saying the way to be preserved, to be useful, to be tasty in the kingdom of God is to let Jesus refine you. To give up those things in your life that you see as precious as a sacrifice. Saying, I give those to Jesus. Whether it is my status, whether it is things in my life that cause me to stumble. God, I care about my holiness. Give me that holy flavor in my life and burn away the rest. I wish I could ask Mark exactly what he meant because we're just going to hope that was good enough. But I can't. That day I'll have to wait to ask Mark what he was saying. But had I been able to just sit down and chat with the author of the Gospel of Mark, I would have asked him and he would have clarified my confusion or maybe he didn't even know what Jesus was saying. See, at the beginning of this passage, the disciples could have asked some clarifying questions about what Jesus was talking about, about being killed and rising from the dead. And they didn't. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, the disciples pull him aside and like, what did you just say? What was that about? Can you explain that parable to me? What were you saying there? Again and again, they say it. And yet here, when Jesus is talking about being killed and rising from the dead, well, no more questions. We're good. Why is that? Maybe they didn't want to hear about sacrifice. Maybe they didn't want to hear about taking up their cross again. Maybe they just wanted to be great and not be humble. If only they had asked, they would have understood what Jesus was saying about status and about holiness. They would have understood about the last being first because the true king of heaven who was first came down to be last and serve and suffer for us. And he came to the least of these, those who could give him nothing in return, the sinners, the tax collectors. And he did not come to form a special group of 12 holy apostles that would rule over the church, but he came to call all people to follow him. If only they had asked, they would have understood how seriously God takes our sin. That he takes our sin so seriously that he doesn't just say cut it off. He says, I will send my son and he will live a perfect life with no sin and then die a sinner's death in your place so that you can be forgiven. He died so that we would escape the fires of hell and enter life. He was cut off from God and from life itself so that we would not be cut off. If only the disciples had asked. If only they had asked about his death and resurrection, they would have understood that the life of a disciple was not about gaining status, but serving. That it's not about comparing yourself to others, but sacrificing for others. 
that it's not about greatness. It's about holiness. That Jesus, the true king and God of the universe, came to serve you through dying, that you might be forgiven of your sin. See, Jesus wants us to see just how small and insignificant our sacrifices would be. How small our hands are, our feet and our eyes compared to what he has given up for us. Jesus calls us to a radical change, to a radical redefinition of sin and greatness. He says, take the most drastic act possible to avoid sin, and yet the smallest kindness in his name, a cup of water, receives reward. That is greatness. Setting aside sin in the smallest things in the name of Christ. Do you hear how seriously he takes discipleship? How seriously he takes sin and yet how lavishly he praises the smallest step in following him. So let us turn from our sin and follow him. Trusting that the only status that matters in this life or the next is to be a child of God forgiven in Jesus Christ. And that anything that slows us down from following him in that path can be cast aside, for he has given us so much more. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you that in your holiness you have not simply judged us justly and poured out your wrath upon us, yet you loved us and sent your Son as a sacrifice that he took the wrath that was rightfully ours for our sin. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that you would use your spirit to convict us of our sin through the word, that we might see the sin in our lives and to get rid of it through your strength and power and grace, and that we might seek to follow you, not that we can consider ourselves great Christians or better Christians than others that are growing, but so that we can follow you who love us, so that we can serve those who will give us nothing in return. Lord, give us hearts for the least of these. Fill us so strongly with your love that we do not seek any status apart from your approval in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.